Are we all ready? Ready, Freddy? Everyone's sitting where they need to be. They got <laughs> yes. you on your beverages of choice. You peed, you hydrated, you're ready to rock. Hydrate or dehydrate. That is correct. Okay, everyone. Well, here we are. I am Charlotte. And I am Dina. Welcome to the Grim Curriculum Live at Police Cafe, our first live show. And we barely knew each other, and I was the crazy person that was like, hey, let's do this. And we talked about this two years ago doing live shows, and here we are. Yeah, nearly, well, I guess technically two years in March, but close enough. <laughs> okay, so I've let a couple of you know already, the few of you that showed up early. The format for this evening is going to go as follows. So we're going to give you guys one long case in the style of our usual episodes. And then we're going to have a short 20 minute or so intermission so that you may use the washroom, top up your beverageinos, and uh, look at some of the lovely merch that Felice has to offer, including some of our very own stickers, etc. And they were designed by the lovely Charlotte, so... <laughs> Once we're done that, we're going to resume with an extra credit style act two. We're going to go back and forth, and then we're going to play a little game. We are. So, all that sound good to everybody here? <laughs> all right, Wonder Bar, let's get going. In the spirit of today's noir theme, we're going to begin this show with a gangster story. We certainly are. If I can find my oh, mouse. <laughs> there it is. Enter Mr. Bugsy Siegel. And that is Siegel. Not Seagull, as in the seafaring bird that steals your fries. <laughs> now, regardless of pronunciation, this man is a gangster who made modern Las Vegas as we know it today. That is to say, the father of the mega casino resorts that line the Las Vegas Strip. So he was known to be a pretty charismatic and handsome fella. He was one of the first front page celebrity gangsters, the kind of mobster that you automatically think of when you think of the Godfather. His name may ring a bell if you're familiar with the Black Dahlia Ooh. murder case. Sorry guys, I'm getting ahead of myself. This is going to a real challenge. Uh, it's because I can't see my mouth. Can you change your mouth for a It's my eyeballs, it's the issue, not the mouse. Bear with me, technical issues. While she's doing that, I'm going to keep talking. So Black Dahlia, we covered her in episode 5. So over 80-some episodes ago, which is insane. Um, he was allegedly a person of interest, but a lot of people still doubt whether or not it was him. If you are a gamer, which we are, and you've played Fallout New Vegas, the character Benny, who you see up on the screen, is visually based on Siegel, and his story just happens to play out in a similar way because he's a major contributor to one of the New Vegas casinos, and of course his character was voiced by the now late Matthew Perry. How many of you played New Vegas? What did you do with Benny? I seduced him and murdered him after I saw him. Life goal! Um, I'm pretty sure I did. 
pretty sure I snuck into his casino and just shot the shit out of him. So, <laughs> two very different strategies. <laughs> okay, so the early life of our good friend Bubsy. Benjamin Siegel was born on the 28th of February, 1906, in New York, specifically Brooklyn. He was the second of five children to a poor Ashkenazi Jewish family that emigrated from the, or emigrated to the U.S., I should say. If you're a fan of mafia history, you might recognize two of his besties, Meyer Lansky and Mo, Morris Moe Sedway. So Meyer Lansky, he grew up to be a very important figure, also known as the mob's accountant. And he was a big guy in American organized crime. He was instrumental in the development of the National Crime Syndicate in the United States. Moe was a little older than the other two, but began his criminal career in Manhattan in street games with Siegel. He had a police record dating as far back as the early 1920s in New York, and continued to work with Siegel and was a faithful lieutenant to Lansky. Basically, their little street gangs would extort money out of local street cart vendors on the street in exchange for protection from other supposed gangs. They basically threatened to incinerate their goods unless they paid a simple dollar. Despite his reputation for being charming and charismatic, fellow gang members nicknamed Siegel Bugsy, which at the time meant crazy. And I mean, you guys can see, he's kind of a looker, right? Um, he had a very violent temper, and allegedly he did not like this nickname. You did not call him Bugsy to his face. Period. <laughs> but he's not here now, is he? Mm -hmm. So, Bugsy, Lansky, and Segway began to move up the crime ladder a little more and graduated to classic gangster crimes of bootlegging and gambling. You're seeing them quickly jump up the ranks of New York's organized crime world. Joseph Doc Stacker, another member of the Bugs and Meyer mob, recalled to Lansky's biographers that Siegel was fearless and saved his friends' lives as the mob moved into bootlegging. Doc is quoted as saying, Bugsy never hesitated when danger threatened. While he tried to figure out what the best move was, Bugsy was already shooting. When it came to action, there was no one better. I've never known a man who had more guts. Siegel was also a boyhood friend to Al Capone. When there was a warrant out for Capone's arrest on a murder charge, Siegel allowed him to hide out with an aunt. On July 28, 1929, Siegel married Esther Krakor, his childhood sweetheart. They had two daughters, Millicent and Barbara. But old Bugsy, he had a reputation as a complete womanizer, and the marriage ended in 1946. In 1931, when Giuseppe Joe the Boss, Nazario, was executed, it was widely believed that Bugsy was one of the four men involved. Now, Masseria was the boss of what is now known as the Genovese crime family, one of New York City's Mafia Five families. He was gunned down in an Italian restaurant in New York, and this led Lucky Luciano to take his place as boss, aka the new chairman of the board of the American Mafia. Now, even though Bugsy was continuing to work as a simple, humble hitman, his only conviction was in Miami on February 28, 1932, when he was arrested for gambling, vagrancy, but from a roll of bills, he simply paid his $100 fine. 
Siegel hunted down and killed Tony Fabricio after he made an assassination attempt on him and Lansky by penetrating Siegel's heavily fortified Waldorf Astoria suite with a bomb. Now this sounds all very intense, but the common version of this story is that Tony lowered the bomb down the chimney of their office. <laughs> very wily coyote. Bugsy spotted the bomb and he threw it out the window before it exploded. Bugsy then checked into a hospital, but it was mainly just to establish his alibi. He then snuck out and joined two accomplices in approaching Fabrizio's house. They posed as detectives, lured him outside, and gunned him down in retaliation. Siegel had learned from his associates by this point that he was in danger and his hospital alibi had become questionable, and he knew his enemies wanted him dead. So, Lansky simply sent Bugsy and Moe to L.A. Bugsy and Moe sound like such a pair. I would watch their TV show. It's giving Three Stooges. You know, they don't sound like the most competent people in the world, I will say. But their mission was to build up the presence of the mob on the West Coast. So, up to this point, the mob had been heavily involved in bootlegging alcohol during the 1920s. But, unfortunately, they could no longer rely on that because, before Bugsy even had a chance to get to California, the 21st Amendment had put a halt on money being made on importing illegal booze. And Charlotte, will you tell us about the 21st Amendment? So I didn't know what the 21st Amendment was because I'm not American, um, <laughs> but I did look it up and clearly the 21st Amendment simply reveals <laughs> The 18th Amendment. And the word amendment has now lost all meaning. Yeah, I mean, the spelling of it doesn't even look right anymore. No. <laughs> so the 18th Amendment was the established federal enforcement of nationwide prohibition on alcohol, simply known to most of us as prohibition. You could definitely argue that in an attempt to cut down on crime by making booze illegal, it actually had a very adverse effect. Because many Americans simply continued to drink despite the amendment, and prohibition gave rise to a profitable black market for alcohol, therefore fueling the rise of organized crime. That's improved for thought, indeed. Anywho, so the 21st Amendment ending national prohibition became effective on December 5th, 1933, meaning that Bugsy had missed that moonshine mark with California by four whole years. Worry not, Bugsy did pull it back around though because he decided to focus on gambling, illegal of course, and in Hollywood, Siegel was welcomed in the highest circles and befriended many well-known movie stars. He was known to associate with big names such as George Raft, Clark Gable, Gary Cooper and Cary Grant, as well as studio executives Louis B. Meyer of MGM fame and Jack Warner of the Warner Brothers. And actress Jean Harlow was a friend of his and godmother to his daughter Millicent. That's like the craziest godmother you could have, Jean Harlow. Well, to me, when I think of Jean Harlow, she's like this stunning, blonde starlet. She's what you think of when you think of Golden Age Hollywood. She's beautiful. And then there's Mr. Violent and Murders People. And she was like, hey, Jean, you want to be the godfather to my children? She was I, like, I yeah, love it. Sure. I love <laughs> it. I would have been friends with all three of them. 
Siegel bought real estate and he threw lavish parties at his Beverly Hills homes and gained admiration from young celebrities like Tony Curtis and even Frank Sinatra. And I think we all know that Mr. Sinatra had his ties to the mafia. Bugsy borrowed money from celebrities left and right knowing that they would never dare or need to ask him for the money back. His first year in Hollywood, he received more than $400,000 in loans from movie stars that he never intended on paying back. Bugsy's relationship with the glamorous socialite Countess Dorothy DeFrasso took Siegel to Italy in 1938, where he met with the big man Benito Mussolini, to whom Siegel tried to sell weapons. He also met some big bad Nazis during that time. He met Hermann Goring and Joseph Goebbels, who he took an instant dislike, and later he offered to kill them. He only relented because of the Countess's anxious pleas. So, can we just take a second to yes, imagine you're sitting at a table, you have big, big Nazis, second only to Hitler himself, and of course Benito Mussolini, and this crazy American gangster is just kicking off. The poor Countess was probably like, Bugsy, shut the fuck up. <laughs> you are not in Hollywood. You're no. gonna die. <laughs> he ended up trying to sell the group of fascists a substance he called atomite, which first of all, that also sounds like a fallout <laughs> substance. I love it. Um, he claimed that it was a new explosive substance that detonated without sound or flash. Mussolini advanced $40,000 to have atomite production scaled up, but Siegel failed to detonate the explosive in 1939 during a demonstration to Mussolini and a whole bunch of Nazis. So Mussolini was like, yo Bugsy, I would like my money Back, please. Bugsy also invested in a gambling ship he named the SS Rex. The ship was anchored three miles outside of Santa Monica to avoid California's anti-gambling laws. Eventually, the authorities did shut down the gambling boat operation, but no matter, Bugsy had already set his sights on the fabulous Las Vegas. Nevada had just legalized gambling, and not having to avoid law enforcement was something that really appealed to Bugsy. In 1945, with a nice big cash injection from Mummy and Daddy back home, um, Mummy and Daddy being the crime syndicate back home on the East Coast, Bugsy took over a struggling construction project just a little ways outside of the Las Vegas city limits. So keep in mind, Bugsy's Vegas is not at all the Vegas that we think of today. It was barely built up, it was in the middle of the desert, and the Flamingo Hotel and Casino was the very first luxury resort on the Strip. Bugsy was apparently so confident in this new venture that on December 26, 1946, before everything was finished, he hosted the grand opening event. Unfortunately, the casino, restaurant, and theater were the only things finished. Despite the bad weather, some big names drove to attend Judy Garland and Clark Gable, just to name a few. They were welcomed with construction noise and a lobby draped with drop cloths. The resort's first air conditioning system broke down constantly. Need I remind you, this is the desert. 
Gambling tables were operating, but the luxury hotel rooms were not ready. And so the motivation to stay, gamble, and party the night away just wasn't there. Word made its way to Siegel during the event that the casino was losing money, so he became irate and verbally abusive, throwing out at least one family. After the glamorous opening event, Bugsy closed the resort to finish construction. Which is a weird choice to close right after you open, but we're not experts. We don't know much about running shady mob casinos. Yes, uh, exactly. And speaking of the mob, mommy and daddy back home in New York were getting a wee bit impatient with Bugsy. And I think you'd be anxious too if you'd gotten wind of the fact that his initial quote of $1 million had quickly shot up to six. Also, Bugsy was allegedly skimming off the top, so you know, there is that. And I've watched The Godfather enough times to know, like, the family don't like it when you fuck them about. <laughs> Speaking of The Godfather, if you have seen the films and you are a fan, you're probably noticing quite a lot of story beats lining up here. At this point, some major mob bosses had a big sit-down together in Cuba, where amongst other items on the agenda, they came to a decision on how to deal with Bugsy Siegel, and uh, they didn't invite him to this meeting. <laughs> The bosses concluded that if Bugsy actually managed to pull off this whole flamingo casino and resort thing, they would call it all good. He'd been a good man to have around in the past, so they were willing to see if he could actually do it. The hotel reopened on March 1st, 1947 with Lansky present and began turning a profit. At this point, Bugsy had made the right call, it seemed, because by May, only two months later of 1947, the Flamingo had made a quarter of a million dollars in profits, which may not sound like a lot for a casino these days, but that's $3.6 million in 2023. Just for context, two months, $3.6 million. Yay! Unfortunately for Bugsy, it wasn't good enough. <laughs> and he's still allegedly skimming from the top. Come on, man. You know who you're working with. You know how the system operates. He made the age-old mistake of fucking around and finding out, and the bigwigs were not happy with Bugsy. It all comes to a head on the evening of 20th of June, 1947. Bugsy was sitting and reading the newspaper on his mistress, Virginia Hill's couch. He had leased a house for her at 810 North Linden Drive in Beverly Hills for her. Virginia was a mobster in her own right, and the fact that she's sometimes known as the queen of the mob should give you an idea of her status. At the time, she was living in Beverly Hills, but just so happened to be in Paris on this particular evening. She had left Las Vegas a couple of weeks earlier after a spat between the couple. They were known to have absolutely awful fights, and the rumors that Bugsy was abusive towards her were flying. The reason that he was even at her house without her was because the lease was about to end and Bugsy needed to collect some clothes and had some meetings scheduled. Bugsy actually wasn't alone in the home that same evening because he had had dinner with his friends, Alan Smiley, Virginia's brother Chick, and her secretary, Jerry Mason, who happened to be engaged to Chick. Smiley drove everyone back to the home on North Linden Drive, where he and Siegel relaxed on the aforementioned sofa. 
As Smiley later explained, they were chitting and skimming newspapers. Chick and Jerry had gone upstairs. Meanwhile, one state over, at the Flamingo Hotel and Casino, on this particular night during the 8.30 show, eight men left their table in the showroom and quickly moved towards the security desk, the front door, and casino cage. They also took over the hotel registration desk. As Bubsy reclined on his absent girlfriend's sofa, reading the paper and chatting with Smiley, Someone else was setting up their 30 caliber rifle under the rose-covered gazebo outside, less than 15 feet away. At 10.45 p.m., nine shots rang out, all of them aimed at Bugsy Seagull. Four of the nine shots hit their intended mark and killed him instantly. One of the bullets hit the bridge of Seagull's nose and knocked out his left eye. Another round hit him in the right cheek and two others in the chest. The other rounds hit the wall behind Seagull. And there are photos if you care to search for them if you want to be gross, but they're pretty graphic, so Google at your own discretion, because again, we just had a live below. I did debate putting them here, but I figured it was up to you whether or not you wanted to see the gore involved. We had a rule tonight that we weren't going to traumatize you guys. Not too much. Just like, <laughs> not the first time, not until like, we made sure you can't. Yeah, if you want to traumatize yourself, feel free to listen to any of the other episodes. Um, <laughs> one of the rounds had actually gone through Smiley's jacket, but he was not wounded. He told the police, I heard the glass shattering and I ducked. I don't know how many shots were fired, but when I looked at Siegel, I could see he had taken most of them. Some local neighbors rushed into the street after hearing the shots and saw a car that raced away. Chick Hill called the police, who arrived on the scene within minutes. Mere moments after Benjamin Bugsy Siegel ceased to breathe, Mo Sedway, along with Gus Greenbaum and Morris Rosen, waltzed right into the Flamingo Hotel and boldly declared that Siegel was dead. The casino and resort were now under their control. And just like that, Bugsy's dead. So up to this point, I think you'll all probably agree, uh, this seems very par for the course, mob hit-wise. Um, it's crossing off a lot of the steps on the how to be murdered by the mob checklist. Despite his fame, or should I say infamy, the coroner actually spelled Bugsy's name wrong on his toe tag. And weirder still, his funeral only lasted five minutes. And only six people attended. And guys, we managed to rustle up more than six people, so... <laughs> And we do want to point out that all of his big celebrity friends that loved him so much, not a single one of them showed up. However, for several days, quote, the tabloids of Manhattan, the sensational papers of Los Angeles, and to a lesser degree, papers all over the U.S., played it high, wide, and handsome, whatever that means. <laughs> Clinton H. Anderson, who was promoted to chief of police in December 1942 and directed some of the most sensational investigations in the U.S. at the time, said, We spent many man hours investigating the Siegel case and were convinced that he was killed by his own associates, but there was never sufficient evidence to pinpoint the identity of the assassin." Of course, we're not just going to leave it there because now it's time to talk about our favorite thing, which is some theories. Now, our good friend here, Mo Sedway, didn't personally kill Bugsy because he physically couldn't have. If you recall, uh, he just walked right into the flamingo at the same time as Bugsy's death. 
However, he clearly played a role in his murder. He had to have been in close communication with the shooter or with someone who knew immediately that there had been a successful hit. Otherwise, he wouldn't have known when to march in and take over the Flamingo. In the early days of the investigation, L.A. County Deputy District Attorney Ernest Roll told reporters there might have been a hundred different people who wanted him out of the way. Journalists went into an absolute frenzy, raising all kinds of questions about the motive for killing Bugsy. Was it to do with narcotics trafficking, over control of the horse race wire service, had he spent too much of the mob's money in completing the flamingo, or was he skimming their money? Let's be honest, a combo of all those things would not be out of pocket before all Bugsy. So now the part that you guys are waiting for are suspects. Theory number one brings us to Mr. Eddie Canizaro. Now, Eddie was a former errand boy for Jack Dragna. Errand boy, hitman, potato, potato. Jack Dragna was once described as the state crime commission as the Al Capone of California, so a pretty big figure in the American mafia world. Unfortunately, Canizaro died of heart failure in 1987 but not before he managed to call a reporter and several federal agents to his bedside. He confessed to seven murders, one of which he claimed was Bugsy Siegel. He said, it was a clean hit. I was picked because I knew Siegel and I wouldn't make a mistake. Which all sounds very good, but turns out there are quite a few discrepancies in his deathbed confession. Eddie said that at the time of the murder, he was questioned about his possible connection, but there is no record of this in the Bugsy Siegel case file. Eddie also claimed that when he drove off after the murder in the direction of Wiltshire Boulevard, but a close neighbor who was interviewed by police says that after they heard the gunshots, a car was speeding off in a, rather, in the opposite direction towards Sunset Boulevard. And the other thing, this might not have anything to do with anything, but we have to note it anyway. At the time of his death, Eddie was living with his mother and her 30, that's three zero, feline friends in LA County. And uh, I think now's a good time to segue into the fact that everyone who bought a ticket today supported Zoe's Animal Rescue Society. <laughs> I because he was dedicating his life to trying to develop a birth control serum for cats. And that's not a joke. We found this out about him. He wanted birth control serum for cats. Yeah, dead serious, guys. Um, he actually went as far as to ask some of his old gangster friends in Vegas if they wouldn't mind putting up some money for funding this birth control serum for cats. So I can't imagine that picture going down. <laughs> I mean, okay, let's just aside here. We've all seen the scene in The Godfather on the day of my daughter's wedding. The Don sitting behind his desk. Don, I have a favor to ask. Anything, tell me. I'm trying to create a birth control serum for cats. Can you fund me? I can't imagine. Anyway. <laughs> the worst thing is he was this tough mobster guy, so he's out killing people by day, and then he comes home and he unlocks the door, and there's his mom sat on the couch with her 30 cats. Like, it's just like the worst thing ever. Right, so okay, do we have any further thoughts before we wrap up our multifaceted former hitman, Eddie Canizaro? I don't buy it. I don't think he's the one. I don't think he's our guy. <laughs> so to me, it's the dichotomy of it all. Like Dina said, on one hand, you have this tough, 
mafia guy who murdered folks for money and obligation. The other hand, well, he just wants his mother's cats to stop fucking breeding. Spaying <laughs> <laughs> and neutering is a thing, but I mean, I guess I birth control serum. That's that's fine. Okay, before we get off way, way off topic, <laughs> let's bring us to our next theory: World War II veteran. Robert McDonald. Now, sadly, we weren't able to find a picture of Mr. McDonald. There's quite a convoluted story here, so we'll ask you all to follow along with us. This theory comes from Warren Hull, an executive assistant in Nevada, who said that McDonald's part in Bugsy's murder had been a long-kept family secret for decades. When Warren's father was on his deathbed, he urged his son to research and find out as much as he could about his family story. Warren went on to create a 400-slide PowerPoint presentation explaining all the points of this case. Now, obviously, um, I'm all about making silly little presentations for my friends, um, <laughs> but 400 slides, guys, I'm we are not going to put you through that this evening. Okay, so follow along with us. Our suspect, Robert McDonald, not to be confused with Ronald McDonald, was married to Hull's mother's cousin and bestie, Betty Ann McDonald. Betty Ann's mother, Gail Rockwell, she worked at the LA City Hall. Stay with us. There, she met Jack Dragna, Mr. Al Capone of California. Ooh, <laughs> so Gaynell told Dragna that her daughter, Betty Ann, was having some troubles with her husband, Robert McDonald. Unfortunately and sadly, Robert was sometimes violent with Betty Ann, and Gaynell was rightfully concerned. Now Robert, coincidentally, just so happened to owe the mob $30,000. Dragna took this opportunity to make Robert an offer he couldn't refuse, and told him that his debts would be forgiven if he agreed to do the hit on Siegel. Hall stated that Robert's time in the military had made him a pretty good shot with a variety of firearms, but definitely including the 30 caliber carbine, which was the suspected murder weapon. And just as a quick aside, in case you were wondering how we know that it was the M1 carbine, because the firearm itself was never actually found. We're going to go on a little bit of a rant. Stay with us. Hey, so investigators found 30 caliber bullet casings outside by the rose-covered gazebo. But you might argue that this could have been another 30 caliber rifle, such as the M1 Garand, another popular World War II weapon. However, its magazine only holds eight rounds, and we know that there were at least nine shots fired. Yes, the shooter certainly could have reloaded, but... Anyone who's played Call of Duty or Medal of Honor will tell you the Garand can't be reloaded mid-clip due to jamming issues. And when you have fired all eight rounds, the magazine makes a noticeable ping. Smiley was in the room with Bubsy. This was only 14 feet away. Smiley would have heard the ping. And also, I want to point out why would the hitman reload only to fire off one more round? It doesn't make any sense. The M1 carbine makes more sense for the murder weapon because its standard magazine holds 15 rounds. So now that you've all had your firearms weapon trading for the evening, we will continue. The neighbor's account of the car speeding towards Sunset Boulevard cast doubt 
<clears throat> excuse me, cast doubt on our suspect once again, Hall theorizes that McDonald wouldn't have driven a car, but instead made his way on foot. McDonald lived on the other side of the golf course, very close to where Bugsy was shot, and it would have made sense that he would make his way quietly in the dark through the golf course right back to his own house less than a mile away. Three short months after Bugsy was murdered, McDonald took his own life, but not before also shooting and killing his wife, Betty Ann. He allegedly <coughs> used the same weapon, a 30 caliber carbine. Now, I don't want to undermine the validity of the fact that this was a very awful, sad conclusion to domestic violence, because Gaynell, Betty Ann's mother, had made folks aware that McDonald was sometimes violent, and she told people she was worried for her daughter. However, is there a possibility that this is just the mob trying to tie up loose ends, and poor Betty Ann simply got caught in the crossfire of her husband's debt issues. Hull claims that there's no evidence that the Beverly Hills police ever even looked into McDonald as a suspect in Bugsy's murder. Hull also believes that there's a possibility that philanthropist, aerospace engineer, and film producer, amongst many other things, Howard Hughes himself, may have pressured police not to investigate because apparently McDonald had worked closely with his father. How do we feel about Mr. Robert McDonald? I like Mr. Robert McDonald for this more than I like Mr. Eddie Canazero, the cat man. Um, based on what we now know, he's certainly capable of killing someone. I think we can deduce that much. He was in a lot of debt to the mob. It does seem a little suspicious that he just happened to own the same kind of rifle that was suspected. That being said, this is America. And uh, after World War II, I would suspect that a 30 caliber carbine probably wasn't that hard to come by. If this is the correct theory, although we still don't know, I feel it certainly wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that the mob killed Robert and Betty Ann to simply clean things up. And that brings us to our final theory, coming to you from Beatrice B. Sedway, the wife of Bugsy's old chum, Mo Sedway. One thing I will tell you guys about Mo is that he is an interesting character. So according to B, Mo had been the one sending casino numbers back to Marilansky on the East Coast. Things like casino winnings, but more to the point, construction costs. In March of 1947, Bugsy caught wind of this and held a meeting without Mo. It's reported that here he very clearly stated his intentions to have Mo taken out. He straight up said, I'll have Mo shot, chop his body up, and have it fed to the Flamingo Hotel's kitchen garbage disposal. So I would say that's pretty clear intentions. <laughs> Someone present at the meeting happened to relay all of this info to Mo. Mo called his wife B immediately and asked her to drive from LA to Vegas. The two then drove out into the desert, parked their car, and proceeded to walk even further. Can I just say, if a monster asked me to drive out into the desert and then walk a little bit further, I'd be like, oh, do you want me to dig the grave? No. It's never a good sign. Like, it's not a good sign that you're nice together. True. <laughs> but Mo and B were married, and as we'll soon learn, they had a very tight relationship. So, no hits on B. All of this was just to ensure that there would be no eager ears listening in on their private conversation. 
B's immediate reaction to the threat of death against her husband was to call Matthew Moose Panza. I love the nicknames, and I love the nickname Moose. One thing I'll say all the time is I love a good nickname. A nickname is something that has to be given to you. You can't come up with your own nickname, guys. I'm sorry. You can't just go around calling yourself Viper or something. (laughs) Um, But mafia nicknames are simply chef's kiss. Moose was B's lover. All right. So Mo and B had a pretty unconventional marriage. They married when Mo was 41 and B was 17. So say what you will about that. However, they were very honest with one another and they just happened to know about each other's extramarital friends. Mo had even insisted that upon his death that B and Moose would get married in Las Vegas. And when he called Moose, he quickly showed up to protect Mo. They must have had some of the best communications as a love triangle that I've ever heard of. I can't imagine there's too many relationships out there where your husband is cool, not only with your boyfriend, but having your boyfriend be his bodyguard and also vice versa. The tables really turned on Bugsy here, because as we know, at the meeting in Cuba with all the big mafia players, Lansky had given Joe Mo permission to deal with Bugsy how he saw fit. And now that Bugsy had officially put a death threat out against Mo, it was game on. Moose stepped up and volunteered to do the job and spent weeks practicing his marksmanship. According to B, after shooting Bugsy, Moose hurried to his car and drove straight down to Santa Monica. He broke down the rifle into different pieces and disposed of them in different locations. A piece on a rooftop, another into the ocean, so on and so on. Years later, when B's son Robbie's health was failing, he called a reporter to tell his mother's story. One thing you will learn about this is we have a lot of deathbed confessions in this story. When the reporter reached out to the Beverly Hills Police Department to check if Moose had ever been considered a suspect, they simply replied, It's in the best interest of the city of Beverly Hills not to speak to you. And that's that. Now, we do have one more person that we want to talk about who, in my opinion, is probably one of the more interesting ones, which is saying a lot. But the theory is that the Chicago mob was responsible and that Bugsy's lady, Miss Virginia Hill, was in on it. If you remember from earlier, Virginia was a big part of the Chicago mob herself. She was a trusted courier and was allegedly feeding the Chicago lads information on Bugsy's dealings. She was, of course, conveniently on another continent when this all went down, but I'm sure that is just a coincidence. The Chicago mob was a big financier of a competing resort to the Flamingo called the Dunes. And for reference, for all of you that have been to Vegas, that's where the Bellagio is now. It's also a little suspicious that the hit took place at Virginia Hill's home, because she would have been able to inform a hitman of Bugsy's habits, such as reading the newspaper on the couch in the evenings, or his other plans. Bugsy was hanging out with Virginia's brother and her assistant after all. In July of 1947, an FBI informant reported another intriguing claim about the identity of Siegel's shooter, one that has definitely endured well into the 21st century. The informant had said that Meyer Lansky suggested that Virginia Hill's brother Chick may have killed Siegel because of Siegel mistreating Hill. 
Bugsy and Virginia had been seeing each other frequently for about five years, and despite having a passionate affair, they often fought, and there were rumors about his poor treatment of her. Virginia eventually moved to Salzburg, Austria, where she passed away at the young age of 49 in 1966. Her death was officially ruled an overdose, but I should say in our opinion, it's certainly not out of the question that the mob was involved in her death also. To date, no one has been prosecuted in the murder of Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. You know, even though Bugsy was technically murdered in Beverly Hills, I guess what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Sorry guys, I have to. <laughs> Alright, so we're going to go into intermission right away, but we have a few thank yous we want to say before we send you guys off on a little pee break. <laughs> so, I mean, you all here know this, but... We are here in Felice Cafe in our very own city of Edmonton. Felice has been hosting their Felice Noir evenings with some really amazing local talents, and they graciously asked us to be a part of it. I mean, we are just humble podcasters after all. So thank you to Felice Cafe for allowing us to commandeer your space for the evening. Thank you to McBain Camera and Beck Antiques. Yes. So uh, McBain supplied us with most of our tech this evening, and Beck Antiques also allowed us to borrow some lovely antique treasures for our set. And uh, that includes a little friend I'm going to introduce you guys to. Yes. Yeah. Respectfully. Those of you who don't know, I work in an antique store managed by uh, some lovely folks and owned by some lovely folks in the back there. And uh, in our travels, we came across this little bear and she's super cute and we love her very much. We named her Daisy. But what happened was she was sitting in part of our store and over the course of about a month, we had like five or six different people that had nothing to do with each other be like, hey, there's something up with this bear, we gotta talk to you. And so over the course of a month, we had people that were young, old, like a 15-year-old little boy to like a 60-year-old lady, all sorts of people that had nothing to do with each other saying that they felt an energy coming from this bear. And we pieced together kind of through stories and feelings that people got that the whatever may or may not be inside of her is around the age of five years old. Um, she was a little girl, and we have a strong feeling that she passed away in a tragic circumstance, possibly a fire. We've had that kind of suggested a few times. But, uh, yeah, just one of the, the fun treasures you can find at uh, Beck Antiques. Yeah, so if you'd ever wanted to meet a haunted bear, here's your first. I brought her home. It went over really well. <laughs> All right, as another thank you, of course, to all of you who bought a ticket, 100% of the proceeds from those tickets are going to Zoe's Animal Rescue Society, which is an amazing local shelter. We both love animals of all shapes and sizes, and uh, there's a lot of critters out there right now that need forever homes, so... So if you have a little space in your life for a furry friend, definitely go check them out. And of course, the person who brought all of this together our wonderful, wonderful friend, Risa. Without her, this event could not have happened. She's also an incredibly talented photographer and writer and just all around a genuinely wonderful human being. I don't know where she is, but Risa, we love you. <laughs>
have our little intermission so you guys can take a break from listening to our constant stream of consciousness, we usually wrap up our regular episodes of the Grim Curriculum with a fun fact. <laughs> and the way that we do this is the other one never knows what that fact is. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I actually found an Edmonton historical fact for everyone. I had known this for a long time, thanks to Dad here. Um, Anthony Henday, the namesake of our ring road, was actually a smuggler back in the day before he came to Canada. So the explorer himself actually had a very shady past. They all, they really do. <laughs> okay, right, thank you guys so much. Gently bent. 
When he was asked what could have possibly done this, he reported. Pause one moment, please. I'm really tired. Oh, I shouldn't do this. Don't worry. <laughs> one second. I'm, I'm going to keep talking about Gordon while she's doing that. Because he said one of my favorite explanations for crop circles, and this is a direct quote. He was asked what could have done this. He said, somehow, it's done by someone who doesn't have a body, like a dead grandma, or a totally different vibration level from us. So, you know, if that's your only options, you have deceased grandma on one hand, or the vibes were off. <laughs> so, apparently St. Paul itself has always been receptive to the idea of aliens, because in 1967, they built a landing pad, and uh, it's still there, you can see it now. It's uh, Lovely. Guys, I told you, St. Paul, it tracks. <laughs> so I have some following witness accounts from the St. Paul and District Chamber of Commerce. These are real. I do want to preface by saying they are witness accounts. So they're not very flowery with the language. It's very straight to the point. They're factual. Factual. Okay, so I'm going to read these to you, and I want to know your thoughts, and uh, I'd love to know what you guys think too. So we're going to start off on October 16, 1995. This report is of a UFO sighting and also a possible landing site. The report came from Jen, Alberta. The incident took place on July 9, 1995. There were two sisters playing out in the yard. The girls are age 13 and 9. As they were playing, they could see some bright lights flashing in a willow bush in the field near the house. The area has tall grass and rose bushes around it also. The girls went to the house to tell their parents what they had seen. When the parents came to look, there was nothing to be seen. The girls insisted enough that the parents went to the site to investigate. There, they found a ring that was burnt into the ground. There was no ash found near the ring. There were pictures taken and also video of the landing site. The ring was measured as 65 feet in diameter. It was observed that none of the animals in the field would go close to the area. The person also reported that one of the neighbors had witnessed three saucer-shaped objects flying by, and as they did, his truck engine had stopped and did not start again until the saucers were gone. They attempted to tell the media about their experience, but no story was done. They did have one person discuss the sighting with them, but no one has gone out to the farm. Four months after this happening, on Thanksgiving Sunday night, the family was returning to the farm after being in town. About 16 miles north of the farm, they saw a misty white cloud over the area where the ring was. They reported that the cloud was flashing with a very bright light like that of a welding flash. As they got near the farm, they noticed the neighbors outside. They stopped to ask if they had seen the same thing. They replied that they had. The object lasted for a while and then went away. We have called investigators to this site for more follow-up. It's interesting to me that this always seems to happen in very rural farming towns. Never happens in a big city, right? No. So it's always Farmer Joe taking his truck down the back roads that sees it, right? There's never anybody else. Exactly. And so this one, a little different, October 10th, 1995. The witness was riding on a bike path near Edwards Park in Calgary. This one's kind of weird, you'll notice the details. It was near dawn when sitting in a campground having a wiener roast with a friend. You, like, do you guys just ever have a 5 a.m. weenie roast with your <laughs> <laughs> The witness noticed two triangular sets of light in the western sky. Witness spoke to the people in the next campsite and was informed that they had been watching these lights for half an hour. At the first sighting, there were two triangular objects seen. Shortly after, one of the objects left. 
The witness watched the object move away, then down to the left, then up to the right, then shot to the left very quickly, and it appeared to rotate at times. They mentioned that when the object left to the west for the last time, there was a trail of light emanating from the rear of the object as it sped away. The light trail appeared to melt as it disintegrated in the sky. It was not the normal speed of exhaust as is common to an aircraft. The witness making this report saw the object for two minutes. The people in the next campsite have observed it for one half hour. I'm always open to hear the stories of UFOs, but I find that they're immediately debunked. But it begs the question, if it wasn't an extraterrestrial uh, aircraft, what is the government doing? Let's put on our tinfoil hats here for a second. Um, that's my thing too, and that's we've talked about this before on the podcast, is if these aren't aliens, we should probably figure out what the fuck we're seeing. <laughs> this last account, I will say, is the scariest and definitely gives uh, signs the movie, uh, M. Night Shyamalan vibes. Alright, so this is a report of a suspected abduction of a man in Calgary. This man started having strange dreams in March of 1993. The dreams start with a loud buzzing noise in his ears. Once the buzzing noise stops, the dream begins. The dream begins by feeling as if he's leaving his body. The room appears to be well lit up, but there are no lights on in the room. The man watches as a rectangular object forms above his body. The object has the appearance of a pillow. It has a black colored center which resembles a muzzle. Around the black ring there appear to be freckles which then in turn into a beige color at the outsides of the object. Flesh pillow. It's never a good sentence. It's not even a good band name. <laughs> the outside of the room is opened. As the objects come closer to him, he focuses on the black muzzle which he feels will do him harm. In all instances, the man returns to his body quickly and wakes up. He is alone in his room, which is dark, and the door is closed. This man was looking for information about any support groups in Alberta. At this time, we are not aware of any such groups. We did pass on the name and number of a psychologist in Edmonton who could possibly help him. <laughs> <laughs> so, perhaps he wasn't abducted by aliens per se, but he's certainly having a sleep paralysis experience that goes into nightmare territory, and I really hope he got the help he needed. I mean, this is in 1995. I hope that he's gotten some sleep since then. Yes, absolutely, because that's enough for me to never sleep ever again. No. So all of this obviously got enough attention to get its own episode of Unsolved Mysteries, so I do want to get into that. Their story starts with two farmers just outside of Edmonton in the late 90s. Rusty Manuel and Belly Whitman woke up one day shocked to find a total of seven crop circles on their lands. Belly was stunned. Understandably. He said the grain was all flattened down. It almost looked like a pattern, like petals, the way the grain came out and then the heads turned back in towards the center again. It was just amazing. So, when that all happened, they called the Canadian Crop Circle Research Network, which exists still, and they wasted no time getting to the site, and they brought Judy Arndt, who is one of their researchers. She said, it looked like the place had been electrocuted. It was just amazing. It looked like there had been a huge force of some sort. Now, I grew up in a town with a lot of farmers. I went to school with a lot of farm kids. No farmer I know would be overjoyed by a crop circle. They'd be like, look at the damage you've done to my goddamn crops. And like, if you find a crop circle first thing in the morning, you're not gonna have an easy day. 
<laughs> no, that will ruin your day. You're about to get more attention than you ever wanted. Not good. So skeptics dismiss these as a hoax, like probably a lot of you have. Because we've probably all seen the famous videos of how crop circles are made. So they have like a board and then they step on it and they go. But something about these crop circles stood out. So first of all, there were no tracks leading to the circles or away from them. And second, we can see this in the picture, they weren't damaged or snapped, they were very carefully bent, and they were affected at a cellular level. They were boiled in the middle, and that's something a board can't do. So simply saying, no one snapped them over, they were almost carefully shaped into place. Samples of the soil were sent to Dr. Iyengar in California, who found a dramatic difference between soil samples taken from inside the crop circle compared to those taken from outside the crop circle. She said, this has been seen by geologists before, but this is a geologic time, this has happened over a geologic time over several millions of years. And this has to be some kind of a fantastic energy that's causing this change, and I have no idea what it is. If it is some kind of fantastic energy, it again leads to the point of, if it's not extraterrestrial, can we find out what's causing it on this planet, please? Now, Judy had one more theory that connected them to the UFOs. She was contacted by a young couple who had been driving along in the late evening. It was a husband and a wife. The husband looked out the window and saw some lights and rolled down the window to make sure it wasn't a reflection saw the lights were still there, and he got really excited and started begging his wife to pull over, and after some arguing, she finally did. There were two small lights, brilliantly blue, and he said that these two lights were playing tag with each other. This sighting occurred about a week before these crop circles were found. And around that time, Rusty Manuel and Belly Whitman saw a helicopter, or so they thought. Belly Whitman said, First, you thought it was a helicopter because it moved like a helicopter, but there were no other lights on it. It was just bright and would hover over the field and sort of move off and then come back again. And it just seemed like it passed over the back end of the pickup and then disappeared. It was so fast. One of the things I, that came to mind is if something like this happened nowadays, you'd be like, duh, it's some idiot with a drone. Um, but this is in the 90s, and civilians didn't really have access to that kind of thing, so food for thought. And a lot of these crop circles were huge. So there was one in Red Deer that was 422 feet across. It was a giant Star of David. And for a few summers, it seemed like crop circles were everywhere. So whether you're a skeptic or not, over the past decade, more than 10,000 crop circles have been reported from around the world. And like I said, if 80% of them are not real, that means that we're left with 2,000 of them that are unexplained and remain unsolved mysteries. I will say, even one unexplained crop circle is too many, never mind 2,000. That's a lot of crop circles. It is. Um, so yeah, Alberta crop circles. I didn't realize that they would be so close to home. I think of the ones that we've seen in Germany mm -hmm. or Belgium or Switzerland or even in the UK. But I mean, we have a lot of crops in Alberta, so it makes sense that there would be circles attached to them, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, they're out there. All right, so that's the end of our UFO crop circle story. Now I'm gonna creep you guys the fuck out. Yeah. This is creepy. This is a really creepy one, it even got me. All right, so we have our own favorite cryptid. Yes, I have a sweet spot for Mothman. <laughs> and I'm a Jersey Devil kind of girl. 
But today we're going to be discussing a type of cryptid. Because this thing is not a fuzzy beast, it's not a scaled sea creature. It's kind of a person, but not just quite. Uncanny Valley, which I do not like. This being is known as Indrid Cold. Let's pull up a picture if I can find my mouse again. Oh my god, I lost it. Top right corner. Thank you. We're getting there. Sorry, guys. Or the Grinning Man. He's described as a human-like figure who stands at about six feet tall. He has tan skin and is often seen wearing a dark blue-green suit that reflects light. So he's a dapper gentleman. So far. His hair is slicked back and his face either looks totally normal, albeit with some small beady eyes, or in some cases he's missing his nose and ears. That, uh, that depends on the witness. You know, you had me at six foot tall, dark and handsome. <laughs> you lost me at he's missing facial features. <laughs> so Indrid Cold has been linked to numerous Mothman sightings. And there are theories that he might be a part of the men in black, or perhaps even from another world altogether. Okay, so I will say, I just heard Cody's brain go, We are the men in black. <laughs> um, this has nothing to do with Will Smith or Tommy Lee Jones. This is something much worse. <laughs> so, so, so much worse. So, one of the most famous Indrid Cold sightings, we're going to take us back to Appalachia on November 2nd, 1966. And fun fact, this happened on a Wednesday, which is statistically the most common day of the week for UFO sightings. It's called the Wednesday phenomenon. I mean, statistically speaking, we only have seven days a week. There's gonna be one that pops up more than the others, but interesting that it's a Wednesday. Something, huh? <laughs> so all of this brings us to Woodrow Durenberger, an overall average Appalachian man who earned an honest living as a sewing machine salesman. And side note, there is an interview with him. Um, he's very old and he's very southern. If you partake in the devil's lettuce, I highly recommend partaking before you watch it because the video is dry. <laughs> I do have it on my watch list, but I haven't watched it yet. It will put you to sleep, I promise. So, it was 7.30 p.m. and he was driving home from Marietta, Ohio when he claimed something weird happened. As he was driving on Route 77 in Parkersburg, West Virginia, he says he saw a flying metallic cigar-shaped craft. It traveled right by his truck and blocked the roadway ahead and gradually made him slow down to a stop on the side of the road. No thank you. Woodrow <laughs> also described the vehicle as resembling a kerosene lamp chimney, which we have one right here for y'all to look at if you're curious. The aircraft itself, it didn't land. It hovered above 12 inches off the road. And a door opened on the craft, and someone walked out and walked right up to Woodrow's truck window. They would not have even had the opportunity to come within 50 feet of my car. I would have thrown her in reverse and gone the fuck out of Dodge. When everything first started, the being looked like a pretty typical guy. He was six feet tall, about 35, olive complexion, dark brown hair, and he wore a glossy, metallic, dark blue coat. What did stand out about him was the look on his face. As he spoke to Durenberger, telepathically, he maintained a huge and creepy as fuck grin, and he did this while he was literally standing there like this. He had both arms tucked under his armpits, <laughs> and he smiled, smiling like an idiot. In the midst of the telepathic communication, he said something along the lines of, Roll down your windows, I want to talk to you. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. He then asked him, what are you called? 
none of your business. So he introduced himself as Andrew Cold, and he reassured him that he meant no harm. He truly didn't understand why Woodrow was frightened. To me, if this is the extraterrestrial contact we've all been waiting for, perhaps Mr. Ingrid Cold had some sort of mind abilities to calm you down so that you wouldn't be scared. But maybe Woodrow was just not having any of that. And Ingrid was like, why are you, you're not supposed to be scared. Why are you scared? So all of this, the crazy thing about this is he started speaking to him more and he starts saying, we mean you no harm, we only wish you happiness. And that reminds me of the Simpsons episodes where they think Mr. Burns is an alien. <laughs> that episode gave me nightmares, but that is exactly what I think of. So the being also told him, we eat, we breathe, we sleep, we bleed, even as you do. And then he's peaced out. He left and he said, see you again later. <laughs> and Woodrow reported this event to the police. Isn't that life-changing? You're on your way home from a, from a normal day of selling sewing machines, and then you're interrupted suddenly by a kerosene lamp that has a man in it. So that was just 10 minutes. It was a 10-minute conversation, and it changed Woodrow's life forever. He was shocked to find out that just a month prior, two boys had a very similar encounter. On October 16, 1966, Martin Mouse Munich and James Jimmy Ankitis were walking down 4th Street in New Jersey when they saw a strange man standing near a fence. So it's one thing to encounter this strange being on a dark, dim back road, but this is New Jersey in the middle of the day, two young boys. Martin would say the following about the incident. Jimmy nudged me and said, who's that guy standing behind you? I looked around and there he was behind that fence, just standing there. He pivoted around and looked right at us, and then he grinned, a big old grin. No, thank you. I hope they just turned around and was like, no, no. Whatever we need to do today, we don't need to do anymore. We don't do anywhere near that fence. All of this brings us to the most famous sighting of the grinning man. This time, he was witnessed by an entire family. During that time in Point Pleasant, the Lily family began to experience some strange things. They reported strange poltergeist-like activity as well as diamond-shaped lights in the sky on multiple occasions. And this is Point Pleasant, West Virginia of Mothman fame, correct? Yes. Their daughter, Linda Lilly, reported that one night she woke up to see a man standing above her, grinning. Mm -mm. She would have the following to say about the incident. It was a man, a very big man, very broad. I couldn't see his face very well, but I could see that he was grinning at me. He walked around the bed and stood right over me. I screamed again and hid under the covers. When I looked again, he was gone. Again, it's one thing if you're out in public and you see this and you're like, no, thank you, not today, not for me. But when you wake up and he's standing there smiling at I wouldn't even like it if any of my loved ones was <laughs> smiling at me. Get out. So what exactly is the Grinning Man? That's going to depend on who you ask. Durenberger believes in the existence of Grinning Men. No, thank you. So he thinks that what he saw was just one of a species of many. The Lily family believes that it's a ghost or a spirit. 
Others think that he might just be a prank that went way too far. I will say, if any of you try to prank me in this manner, <laughs> it will be friends off forever. I will never speak to you again, just know that. Mm -hmm. We may never know who or what Indrid Cold is, but we do know one thing. We'd rather never get close enough to find out. Yes, no thank you. Don't need that experience. Moving on. We're gonna like the moon now. Yes, we certainly <laughs> are. Okay. So, one of my favorite segments of Extra Credit that I think we really need to do more of is our Victorian slang segment. <laughs> I am about to rant for a few minutes, so just buckle up. You never <laughs> rant, what are you talking about? Please. Okay. I am about to completely nerd out. Um, you are all our lovely and kind guests. You are also my captive audience, and uh, I am my father's daughter, so by all means, interrupt me at any time if I'm going on. Go hard. Okay, so on extra credit, we usually make a game of it where I say the Victorian slang term, Dina gets to guess what it means. So coincidentally, I have recently borrowed the Oxford Dictionary of Slang, which is up there on the mantle, uh, from my dad, and I have been having a good old chuckle going through it. Um, so tonight, not all of our words are Victorian, but some of their origins are much, much older. Unlike most dictionaries, this particular book is organized not alphabetically, as you would expect with a dictionary, but thematically. Um, that to be said, for example, people or society or arts and entertainment, so on and so forth. Like I said, I am a huge nerd when it comes to language. I just find it very fascinating. Um, also, me and my sister used to open the book and read all the bad words and giggle to ourselves. Um, this isn't a particularly grim or scary section, but it is history, and uh, after some of the cases we cover, sometimes you just gotta giggle at the silly words. Um, speaking of my dad, as he always says, there's no such thing as the English language, because really, most words can be traced back to Latin or Greek, French or German or Turkish, I could go on. I love listening to people with different accents. I love looking up the etymology of words and phrases. There's a lot of fun phrases that have certainly died out, but I would love to add them back into my day-to-day -day life. I also love, as you might have guessed, to swear. Um, <laughs> sorry, mom and dad. Uh, but to anyone who has met me, it, you know where it comes from. Um, I'm a very passionate person, and as comedian Tommy Turnin once said, the English language is like a brick wall between me and you, and fuck is my chisel. <laughs> so, in the spirit of all of that, I thought we could play the slang game live here at Felice Cafe. However, we're upping the ante by adding some alcohol into the equation. So oh. yes, I am already one beer down, I won't lie to you. It's crazy tonight, guys. Just wild. <laughs> um, but what will happen is, I will say the slang word or phrase, Dina is allowed one clue from myself, and she has one ask the audience her phrase. If I'm incorrect, I will take a shot. If Dina, of beer. Of beer. <laughs> <laughs> if Dina gets it, with or without your help, I will take the swig of beer. There are three phrases, therefore three swigs. 
Um, we were going to do something a little stronger, but I actually don't drink that often, and I didn't want to be absolutely trashed at our first live show. The second one we'll talk about. <laughs> so, as I was going through the book, there's so many good words that really stood out to me, but it was very hard to narrow them down, so I decided to stick to the body and its functions, which is the very first section in the book. I think we might all learn a thing or two about ourselves today. Now, let me pull it up. Let's see if this actually goes right. Our first word's origin is all the way back from 1668. It is from page two of the Oxford Dictionary of Slang. Um, I should also say, I did a little bit of digging when I was reading, and I'm pretty sure the copy that you gave me, Dad, is a first edition. Um, it's by John Ato, if you want to get your own hands on it. It is a very fun read, so I definitely recommend if you are a language nerd like myself. Um, anyway, our first word is fizz. P-H-I-Z. What do we think? Fizz. Now, I will remind you, these are all related to the body and its functions. <laughs> um, can I get, can you use it in a sentence? Oh, he had a fizz I just couldn't stop thinking about. <laughs> Would you like a clue? Okay. So, this particular word traces back to 1688. Its longer form <laughs> is fizzog. I, I hope that cleared things up Thank for you. Thank you. I screwed in you. Instinctually, I want to say penis, but it's not a penis. That'd be too obvious. Would you like to ask the audience? Does anyone in the audience know what a fizzog is? Yes. Face. A face. Is it a base? It is a oh, face. Charlotte, chuckle up. I guess so. I'll give you the history of the sentence. He got a nice fizz. So, the word fizz, or fizzog, comes from the word physiognomy, and it does indeed mean your features, your face. It's still used occasionally, um, more so in like the 80s, but it fizzog trait. Traces back to 1811. So bring it back. Yeah, yeah he's got yeah. a nice fizzog. The fizzog looks really good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here, I'm going to take another swig for good measure. Okay. Now, our next word. Well, so this was the, I, I mean, it came up briefly before. Yeah, and it still makes sense. So raspberry tart. Again, I'll remind you, body and functions. Mom, you're not allowed to answer all the wrong <laughs> I have a guess, but if it's wrong, I'm going to feel really silly. Do you want to hear the clue first? Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Okay, we're good, we're good. So it traces back to 1892. Ah, I did it again. It's rhyming slang. So raspberry tart means stinky fart. Okay. Oh, I need to take a drink. 
I never do well at this. This is great. Okay, so our last one, although I shouldn't say it's not quite the last. I have a bonus one, but our last one is going to be a little bit different. I'm actually going to tell you the word and the definition that's usually associated with it. You tell me when you think it originated. And just to be kind, I'll give it to you up to the century. Okay. So, and of course, I'm not going to give you a clue, but you can ask the audience. Oops. Oh, oh we're getting there. No, nope, we'll go through it again. <laughs> Our phrase is the clap. <laughs> the definition is exactly what you think of, the venereal disease. So up to the century, how far do we think this dates back to? I can even give you a clue onto its origins. Let's hear it. So, it's old French. It comes from two words, actually. Clapoir and clapier. <laughs> a clapoir was a sexual sore that you got from seeing a brothel, which is a clapier. Um, therefore, clap, clap. The clap. <laughs> All right, world's oldest profession. So, <laughs> yes, century. 1347. <laughs> Is that your final answer? Is it? No. Okay, no. does anyone think it's 1300s? Anyone? Up? If you think it's more recent. Up. 1574. 1699. Guys, this is an auction, you guys. Okay, final answer, what do we think? 1995. Okay. 1669. Oh, good number. Good. Not quite. Not quite. So it originated in 1587, which is actually the 16th century. I looked it up. <laughs> now we know. Thank you. Okay, so for one last quick bonus, this is from page 99 of the Slang Dictionary. Um, this one isn't related to the body and its functions. I just thought it was interesting. I think we're all pretty familiar with the word sus, right? <laughs> uh, as in suspicious. I mean, I probably use it daily. Um, any guesses as to how, how far back we can trace sus to? You don't have to drink on this one. Oh my goodness, we've all been sus for so long. Feel free to chime out your guesses, you guys. You're better 1500. at this time. 1500. 15, we've 17. Sus. I'm going to say <laughs> 1778. Oh. Not quite that far back. <laughs> <laughs> some very posh officers, perhaps fighter pilots, going, oh yes, oh pal, don't you think that was a bit sus? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, guys, thank you so much for nerding out with me about language. Uh, not that you have a choice, but <laughs> I hope you learn at least one new word that you can share with your family. And you guys, we're going to end off tonight the same way we end off all of our extra credit episodes, and that is with a strange and unusual death. Oh, I know this one! So, I wanted a really special one for tonight, so 
This isn't the death of one person. We're going to be talking about something that claimed the lives of up to 400 people, and that is the Dancing Plague. <laughs> we're going to be focusing on the one that happened in 1518 because there were many dancing plagues. This all began on Christmas Eve. We did make it Christmas Eve for you. In the year 1021 in the town of Kolbeck in what is now modern-day Germany. 18 people showed up outside of a church and just began to dance. The priest inside did his best to perform Christmas Eve Mass. However, the people outside just kept dancing and dancing, which led to more and more people becoming distracted and not paying attention to the priest and his sermon. Rude. Right? <laughs> Finally, he grew frustrated enough that he went outside and he ordered them to stop. Their response was to ignore him, join hands, and begin dancing in a circle that would later be described as a ring dance of sin. Now that's a good bad name. <laughs> as they danced round and round, they clapped, they cheered, and they leapt in the air as high as they could. The priest, now furious, loudly proclaimed to the dancers that he was cursing them all to an entire year of dancing. Which, you didn't want him to dance, pal. Why are we now dancing for 365 days? Why is the priest cursing people? Okay, thank you. I thought priests were holy men. Didn't we? I didn't know they had the capability to curse people. The story goes that they danced that entire year, and when Christmas Eve rolled by again, they all collapsed into a deep sleep, and many of them never woke up. Dark. Now, that's a pretty interesting story, but, uh, I mean, early thousands, record-keeping was a little bit spotty, so all of this brings us to July of 1518 with a much more authentic story. One day in a small village called Strasbourg, a woman known as Frau Trophe walked onto the street and she just started to dance. She was in a mood. She was. Curious onlookers thought of this as kind of weird, but they let her do her thing until they realized she's not stopping. <laughs> and eventually she just collapsed. She then got up and started to dance again. And this went on for days. Eventually people were like, okay, She's onto something, and they started dancing too. And eventually, she was dancing with a party of about 30. Can you imagine? You're just heading down your high street, and there's just, a, a, I guess, a flash mob. This is 1500s dancing. This isn't like, yeah, they're not twerking out there. No, they're just like, they're doing their thing. All of these people, just like her, they wouldn't stop no matter what. Some of them sprained their ankles and they broke their bones, but they continued dancing like nothing was wrong. Eventually, those in charge realized that they had to intervene, and so the local leaders came up with a plan. We gotta get these people to dance even more. <laughs> they appointed local guild halls as official dance spots, and they went as far as to construct a stage in the middle of the city where people could gather and get it out of their system. I understand, obviously, having come through a pandemic ourselves, quarantine can be important, but it doesn't seem right to encourage them. <laughs> the thing is, they hired a group of dancers to dance with them, and they got these musicians, and they just like made it a party, and believe it or not, this made everything worse. <laughs> more and more people began to join the feverish dance until their numbers grew into the hundreds. They dance until they collapsed, and then they just get up and keep going. And this went on into September until many of the afflicted collapsed for the final time. 
This continued until one day those lucky enough to have survived the strange affliction snapped out of it and just went back to their lives. This is the most E-rated zombie plague you've ever <laughs> heard of in your life. So, you're probably wondering what caused this to happen, and we love our theories, so I've got some for you. The first one, good old-fashioned demonic possession. Classic. Mm -hmm. That's my number one right there. <laughs> <laughs> they pulled that out, and then their second idea was, oh, their blood is really hot, so they're just dancing a lot. Is your guys' blood not hot? Why should you start dance? dancing? Now, the most likely explanation is a little something called ergot poisoning. This was most likely caused by folks eating bread that was contaminated with the fungal disease. So don't, don't cut the mold off your bread, guys. Throw your bread in the garbage, get new bread. Symptoms of ergot poisoning include, but are not limited to, convulsions, vomiting, hallucinations, and a shit ton of gangrene. It has also been linked to what caused the madness that resulted in the Salem witch trials over a century later. Sociologist Robert Bartholomew suggests that the dancers were part of a heretical sect that attempted to attract favor from those above. Because if it's not demonic possession, it's obviously witches. Right? <laughs> now, medical historian John Waller believed that the dancing plague was caused by good old-fashioned stress. Because life in the 1500s sucked. <laughs> it's believed that the stress of overall life caused a severe group psychogenic disorder. Now, another potential culprit, according to him, was something that we talk about this more than any other thing on the podcast, and that is syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> if we had a dollar for every time we talked about syphilis on the show, we'd have about seven or eight dollars, which is not a lot of money, uh, but it's weird that it happened seven or eight times. <laughs> and we talk about it way too much. So yeah, that was the other thing. They're like, it was syphilis. So we don't really know what caused them to dance. We do know that a lot of them died. And uh, with that, rest in peace to all of those who succumbed to the rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the end of our program this evening. We hope you all enjoyed yourselves and at the very least learned a new interesting tidbit to liven up the conversation at your upcoming family Christmas <laughs> <laughs> We encourage you to share the slang words with your conservative aunts and uncles. <laughs> and oh, no. Thanks so much again to our fabulous friend Risa and Felice Cafe for hosting us. Zoe's Animal Rescue Society, or for those who will be listening at home that have supported us since we decided to take this leap and start our grim little podcast. Thank you very much from the bottom of our little grim hearts. <laughs> this has been the Grim Curriculum. Woo